Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good morning in Washington, D.C. to Dr. Whitney Schneidman, who is a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution, also has a very, very extensive background in U.S. African affairs. Uh, Whitney is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs in the Clinton administration, where he uh, did a lot of work on economic and commercial issues, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. He's also the co-author, or no, I'm sorry, the author of Engaging Africa, Washington, and the Fall of Portugal's Colonial Empire. Empire. And, and one little fun fact here for everybody. Uh, Whitney, if, if, I, if I'm correct from your Wikipedia uh, biography, you were also instrumental in the passage and implementation of the African Growth and Opportunity Act, also known as AGOA. So, uh, wow, we're humbled and thrilled to have you on the show today. Eric, thank you for the kind introduction, and Kovas, uh, good afternoon to you, too. Well, so the reason why we've asked uh, Whitney to take some, some time out of his incredibly busy schedule here is to talk about a piece that he wrote back in December on the Brookings website uh, and, and, and entitled, Are Chinese Companies Retooling in Africa? Now, this is a particularly interesting topic because the, for lack of a better, kind of the, the street rep, if you will, of Chinese companies in Africa really isn't that good. I mean, we're talking about labor abuses, uh, you know, the, the, the importation of labor, violations of visa regulations, immigration regulations, really anything that's bad, the Chinese are being credited for doing. And so here Whitney comes along with this piece and says, well, you know, this might be changing. So Whitney, I'd like to start by reading a piece uh, in one of your opening paragraphs. And, and, and you said, conversations in China last month, so that's November of last year, suggest a growing perception that the country's model of extending low-interest commercial loans to African governments for large infrastructure projects is not sustainable. I guess the word that intrigued me was conversations. Who exactly did you speak with that gave you this perception? Uh, I won't say misperception, but we'll say misperception that things are actually changing. Well, let me just say it was uh, a very senior official at a large state-owned enterprise uh, in Beijing. And I was, um, I was stunned and I was just fascinated to hear my interlocutor uh, state just that, that the model of extending low-interest commercial loans to African governments in exchange for the purchase of Chinese goods, labor, and services that would then be paid off with transfer of minerals or natural resources uh, was, was not sustainable. And we had an hour and a half discussion um, around that issue, and it was not just this one individual, it was a, a team of senior officials. And um, I just saw that uh, that was very uh, new thinking. I had not encountered that before. And then I did some research, and I saw that um, China has um, opened up a facility at the African Development Bank which, of course, is available to not only Chinese companies, but African companies and presumably uh, Western companies. And I think this kind of thinking is something to be encouraged. I think it's something to be uh, you know, engaged in. And um, I think it's uh, a recognition that the model 
is running into problems on the continent in terms of backlash uh, from civil society groups and some governments who say, look, you know, none of our people are getting jobs here. None of our people are being trained. None of our people are getting promoted. No technology is being transferred. It's just a straight commercial deal, and we want something better than that. So um, that's a very important conversation uh, to 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 recognize and to be had and um, so that's really the impetus behind the piece one to uh, acknowledge the new thinking and two to sort of put some ideas about how uh, those of us in the U.S. and elsewhere and in Africa might might embrace it but then also to point out you know the Chinese firms still are running into problems while at the same time many of them are doing um, uh, you know good work on the continent as well so um, are these these low interest commercial loans you pointed out that they're not working politically and in, and in a in in a kind of a bilateral country to country relationship context but are they actually working commercially are you know kind of are they do these do these loans produce what they're supposed to produce and are the Chinese then getting the money back that they expected? Well, I wouldn't be categorical to say that they're not working because I would say clearly they are because governments are still accepting uh, those loans for infrastructure projects, for roads, for ports, for stadiums, uh, for buildings. Um, so, so that dynamic is still going on. Are they being repaid? I presume they are. I mean, we don't really know. And that's, that's half the problem here is because, you know, in contrast with many Western companies, there, there are no shareholders here. There are no, there's no public listing. So we don't really know what the profit um, dimension is and, and, and what the um, payback uh, rate is. You know, all we can do is sort of, Talk to the World Bank and the IMF uh, because they, you know, they have access to the ministries of finance on on the African side to get their assessment of um, are we seeing new uh, unsustainable levels of debt? It doesn't seem that we are, or are these putting a burden on these economies? That doesn't seem to be really uh, happening. The real problem with these commercial loans is 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 that they are essentially tied aid, uh, that they're tied to you know Chinese products and Chinese labor, and this was a model that the U.S. used in the 70s and 80s that is that led to the huge debt overhang. It wasn't just the bilateral aid, but it was also you know the uh, international donor aid as well uh, from the World Bank. Um, but I think. It has the potential to become uh, very problematic. Can I play devil's advocate here a little bit? And again, just for the yeah. sake of our conversation, but you know, the Chinese are known for sometimes telling foreigners what they think they want to hear. And so, you know, this has been a, a, a kind of a gnawing thing about the Chinese in Africa, the, the con contribution to corruption, the lack of transparency, the opacity of how they do business there, and, and all of the, the ills that that produces. So, you know, and I think in many ways that governments are a lot like people. And, you know, listen, I eat some potato chips I shouldn't be eating. I have a cigarette every once in a while I shouldn't be doing. I know it's not good for me, but I can't stop. And so I think that the Chinese, thinking back to kind of how Deborah Braudigam kind of framed how the Chinese development model works, which is 
following what the Japanese did with them in terms of low interest loans in exchange for resources, they don't really know how to do anything else. I mean, this is a problem domestically within China as well, that the banks are giving the provinces endless amounts of cash to build infrastructure that the country doesn't need anymore. And so I'm wondering if, again, our governments like people that they have bad behaviors that they say they want to to change, but at the end of the day, um, they, they don't know how to. I mean, and so if they say, yes, we know we need, this isn't good, but the entire system is set up to funnel low interest loans and to funnel people and to funnel these contracts, how, how much change is realistic, do you think? Well, I mean, that's, that's certainly the channel, uh, uh, the, the challenge, isn't it? And that's why, um, you know, I think we need to, uh, in this instance, take uh, China and take these individuals at face value. Uh, because we've seen that um, there can be change. For instance, um, the uh, climate, climate change deal that uh, President Obama and President Xi uh, reached uh, last year was really quite significant and runs counter to the image of, you know, a unilateral China asserting its influence wherever it can. You know, that that climate deal is about partnership and it's about uh, engaging in a new way. The uh, facility that the Chinese have established at the African Development Bank, that is a new way of uh, uh, doing business. That's that didn't exist several years ago. So we're seeing incremental change, and I think it would be a mistake not to uh, recognize it and acknowledge it and try to embrace it so it can be leveraged for positive outcomes and that there can be a back and forth uh, between Chinese and Western models of development. So it's not put forward that it's either this way or that way. I think uh, Western companies have learned an awful lot about doing business in Africa that can be relevant uh, to China. And I'm sure there there are things that uh, uh, Western companies can learn from Chinese companies too. Uh, But the point is, we need to be having this conversation and we need to find areas where we can work together for the good of economic development in Africa. Let's be clear what the goal is. Yeah. Kobus, let me Uh, me um, put an idea. Kobus, if I can put an idea to you very quickly. Uh, You you and your research focus on narratives quite a bit, particularly media narratives. Uh, In our discussions with people like Huang Hongxiang, who's a Chinese CSR activist out of Kenya, uh, you and I both know the scholar Romain Dickin, who uh, does, has done a lot of work with CSR of Chinese companies, particularly China National Petroleum Corporation in Chad. And again, what I find interesting is that when you talk to a lot of the people on the ground, there, there's a big effort, much to what Whitney is saying, for Chinese companies to actually find religion here and do the right thing. But yet, it doesn't fit within the prevailing narratives, the embedded narratives about the Chinese in Africa. The Chinese and African narrative is exploitation, rape, neocolonialism, resource extraction. And here we try to see that they're doing something different as we have some case studies now. And from what Whitney's telling me, there's even a mindset that's driving this. Um, but that may not find a very prominent voice in, in the broader media discussions. 
Well, I think media is also cumulative, you know, kind of, so you need to, you know, if media is flowing in one direction, it takes a lot of, of work to start making it flow in a different direction. And then once it, once it creates, once it reaches some form of critical mass, then it's actually difficult to then change that, the new direction. So, you know, kind of media works a little bit slower, I think, in certain, or, you know, kind of to change the narrative works slower than simply, you know, kind of simply doing a certain amount of responsible CSR. What, you know, kind of the the CSR is one thing, communicating the CSR is a, is a second thing, and then communicating it on a scale that would actually change the narrative is a, is a third and, and much more difficult thing to do, I think. Um, what I'm a little, what, what I, I think, though, that there is a little bit of a, a more fundamental problem, and that is that, you know, when, when we talk about Chinese CSR or any foreign CSR in Africa, it assumes certain things that Africans need and want. And I think Africans have, one, one of our problems is that Africans have not been very, very good at articulating their needs. And they've not been very very strategic at articulating their needs in order to really get to the optimum thing from these, from the, the optimum outcomes from these massive companies. Um, so I think the, the a, a large, you know, a, a, a kind of an un, unapproached and, you know, kind of undescribed and unanalyzed aspect of all of this is what Africa should do um, as, as as a business partner, how Africa should should change and, and adapt its business practices in in, in this relationship, um, Whitney, I was actually wondering if you could actually speak to that a little bit and like and and just just talk about how you think Africa should, uh, you know, kind of strategize for new kinds of financing structures, if, you know, kind of uh, emerging at the moment from China. Yeah, Cobus, uh, you've you've touched on something that I think is really central to this whole conversation. You know, the notion of CSR, and I think um, you know it has to be asked, is it external to the business dynamic or is it intrinsic to the business dynamic? And in my view, CSR, in, in my view, today in Africa, business done the right way is all about economic development. And um, it's, it's about job creation. It's about training. It's about, um, you know, working with other, other local companies. And so that there's a whole value chain uh, that is put in place that it's really seen from the top to the bottom of any company that uh, this is the way you're going to do business in Africa. And that goes to finance uh, as, as well and, and leveraging finance. You know, Africa, is, it's quite interesting where I sit in Washington, you know, we uh, – hear a lot about different funds looking for uh, deals in Africa and sort of all the funds chasing uh, the same projects and there aren't enough projects for all the capital that's available. And I think that's a huge opportunity to bring Chinese uh, firms into uh, the capital space, into the Western capital space, because as we know, some of these infrastructure projects are huge projects, whether you're talking about, you know, hydro or whether you're talking about railroads or, um, um, you know, roads or um, solar or, or wind. I mean, these are big projects. And I think the more that we can you know, make progress in this area, bringing Western capital maybe to some, you know, Chinese labor that's, that, that is 50-50 Chinese, 50-50 African. Um, I think that could be a really new and interesting business model. It sounds great, but the transparency requirements of a lot of that Western capital, particularly American, 
American capital, which a lot of it falls under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, may run into a lot of problems. And I'm not suggesting that all Chinese companies are corrupt, but I am suggesting that the way the Chinese do business, not just in Africa, but around the world, is far more opaque than our system of accountability calls for. And so I wonder how realistic that is to be able to pair up Chinese, you know, companies with Western capital in places like Africa, which have weak oversight and weak legal systems to begin with? Well, I mean, this is, this is a fundamental aspect of, of the conversation uh, that we need to be having with Chinese companies because it revolves, it, it revolves around labor standards. It revolves around environmental standards. It revolves around uh, transparency uh, and anti-corruption. And, the, and at the end of the day, it is about putting in um, uh, compliance systems that do conform, not with just the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but with the UK uh, Anti-Bribery Act. And so when I hear, you know, Chinese uh, business leaders tell me that they want to do business in a different way, in a new way, and to work with Western capital. Well, implicit in that is a recognition that they're going to have to move forward in a lot of different ways to achieve that goal. And I don't think we should just be uh, intimidated by the enormity of, of the task, or I don't think we should not take it seriously, because by taking it seriously, by working uh, with Chinese companies, by working with Chinese and African companies to put in these compliance systems, then we know that we're doing business in such a way that the benefits are going to be realized by a wide range of people up and down the socioeconomic uh, scale. And it's not just going to go to one group, um, which has been the problem uh, so much before. Uh, you know, kind of a, one one aspect of of um, American African relations that I think might complicate some some of, of this cooperation um, could be the the increasing focus on security issues in Africa. Um, do you foresee security being uh, being a, a disruptive force, or security concerns being a disruptive force in in, in this in this process, or is there some space where the U.S. and China could actually fruitfully cooperate in security issues in Africa? Well, this is this is a very important area, and this is something where uh, this is where Chinese and American firms are impacted equally and and directly. If you look at the Chinese experience in in, in Libya, it, I think it was a huge wake up call for China. You know, they lost. Uh, about $20 billion of investment. Some 30,000 Chinese workers had to be evacuated within, what, a month or six weeks. It was, it was a tremendous uh, uh, negative experience. And I think it has um, uh, conveyed the message that um, a relationship with the head of state or with senior government officials in Africa is not sufficient to a long-term uh, commercial engagement. And similarly, you look at the uh, Chinese posture uh, on on security issues. You know, the Chinese played a um, an important role in helping to combat uh, piracy in uh, off the coast of uh, Somalia. They've now deployed uh, peacekeeping troops uh, uh, into Sudan, and and 
they haven't been under the control of, of UN um, uh, officers. But nevertheless, I think the Chinese are waking up to the fact that to be successful commercially in Africa, you know, they also have to be uh, a partner in, in addressing some of the most pressing security concerns. Well, the article is, are, China, are Chinese companies retooling in Africa? Check it out on the Brookings website at brookings.edu. Just look for uh, Chinese companies retooling in Africa. Whitney, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure to have you, uh, and we hope that we can invite you back. Eric, anytime. Very, very good talking uh, both to you and Cobus. Wonderful. Well, uh, Whitney Schneidman is a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institute, also the author of Engaging Africa, Washington and the Fall of Portugal's Colonial Empire. Uh, at the end of our show, do you, we, we always try to kind of invite people to kind of follow what our guests are writing or reading. Do you uh, have any, besides your, your writing on the Brookings Institute, is there any way that people can follow what you're doing, say, on Twitter or social media? Yes, I've got I've got a Twitter handle at uh, um, uh, uh, Whitney Schneid S uh, W I T N E Y S C H N E I D, and uh, I also publish a lot on uh, CovAfrica um, dot com. Excellent, and uh, Cobus, the best way for people to follow what you're reading and writing these days is. I'm on Twitter at Sadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter at E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. E -O -L -A -N -D -E -R. Also, we want to invite everybody, and hopefully Whitney as well, to sign up for our new uh, China-Africa Project weekly e-newsletter. So we're putting out uh, about five or six stories every Monday on the top China-Africa stories to help you kind of get your week started off in a kind of interesting way for some things uh, that you can read over the course of a week. Just go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com and you can sign up for it there. And of course, if you want to sign up for this podcast, best way to do it, just head over to iTunes and look for the China Africa Project. Well, we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.